Hi, welcome to On Course, the podcast from Equine Green. I'm Eric Dawson. Today I'm joined by Eddie Gonzalez Novoa, a serial social entrepreneur who worked uh, for years in education, launching the early education organization uh, Jumpstart and then leading Public Allies, before helping launch a tech company with his nephew. Now he's working in the field of healthcare tech. He's done many things over the course of his career. Uh, he's an artist, uh, aspiring theologian, uh, and an all-around good human being. Eddie, I'm so glad that you could be with us today. Ah, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So I describe you as the uh, Jennifer Lopez of social entrepreneurship. Uh, you are the triple threat. Uh, you've worked in the arts. Uh, you've worked in education. You've worked in healthcare. Why? And, and I don't mean why in the sense of, of, of why those fields, but um, where did that spirit of adventure, that spirit of curiosity, the need to build, create, come from? Take us, take us back to a, a moment, a snapshot as, as a child that captures the why. Sure. I think uh, a lot of it has to do with the influence of my family and the things that they were passionate about and interested in, um, both my parents who came to New York from Puerto Rico in the uh, early 50s. My brothers, who kind of integrated the school systems in a very white neighborhood in suburban New Jersey, I kind of watched them at an early age. And um, my oldest brother turned out to be a literally a rocket scientist. He was always kind of skilled in um, science and engineering. That was his path. My second oldest brother was a gifted artist. Um, to this day, he is um, a professional photographer. That was his path. And so I was always looking for that narrative thread, what was going to be my single path. And it turns out that there was no single thread, but a, a couple of threads that I ended up kind of braiding together to kind of create my, my journey. I always knew that I wanted to do something in the realm of helping people. Um, I had a sense that I wanted to do something in the realm of helping and working with children. Um, I always wanted to do something related to the arts. Um, I always had a kind of creative side to me, and I think that um, that combination of things I've always kind of drawn, I've been drawn to, and um, I've kind of defined my career over the years, partially because I was trying to find that one thing, so I just kept trying new things until I found the one, and it turns out that that was not my path to find one, but to find multiple and integrate them in kind of creative ways. And so I, I thought I would pick up a new thing and then put another one down. Um, and turns out I just kept layering one on top of the other. Yeah, kind of like a braid. So if, if we looked at the, the movie of your life mm -hmm. and, and we zoomed into fifth grade and, and, and looked at it at little Eddie, what would we have seen in your life at that point? What was going on for you? You know, it's interesting because, you know, in fifth grade, I started a new kind of gifted and talented program. Um, and so that's, at that time, the school district took students from all over and put them in a separate program in a school that's different from the school that most of my friends went to. And so it's funny that you mentioned fifth grade because it's probably the first time in my life where being um, smart, being different in a good way, um, set me apart in a bad way. I remember kind of uh, school kids kind of spitting on our bus um, as we kind wow. of pulled in. Yeah, it was just, you know, kind of calling us names and, you know, you know, at a young age, not really internalizing it at that point. 
Um, although also kind of watching kind of the layers of kind of bias on top of that, watching one of my student, one of my fellow students um, being spit upon because she was Indian, and this is during the, the uh, Iranian hostage crisis, and so she was just kind of lumped in with all things kind of Middle Eastern and South Asian, and all of that town's kind of rage was kind of directed towards students like her, and I'm thinking this is not just about being smart, it's about... Um, being different, and as I would kind of grow to kind of understand later on, will become an issue um, if you're gay as well. And so I think having that formative experience at fifth grade of kind of understanding um, what it means to be different, um, accepting it and not being ashamed of it um, was kind of new for me. And I think some of my most formative friendships were made at, at fifth grade for that reason. I get the sense you have this, this loving, creative family. Um, and and we're different. How has the role of feeling different or being different shaped how you move through it? It's a good question. My, um, you know, I think my mom used to say, you know, kind of talk about us being kind of in the world but not of the world. Um, in some ways, it's it's interesting. I've been kind of thinking about this a lot lately. I think my parents really wanted us to excel and succeed and be happy. I think it's it's a very kind of kind of immigrant um, kind of value system, um, and in some ways, I think uh, without kind of putting words in their mouth, but I think in some ways they their idea of doing that was by kind of fitting in and assimilating. And in some ways, being very kind of conformist in their approaches to success. Ironically, the way they lived their lives was quite the opposite. You know, I think we were kind of put in situations where. Um, we had to kind of learn to kind of embrace being different very early on, um, where I was not encouraged to compare myself to kids down the street who had later curfews than I did or who had gaming systems. I was going to say the latest gaming system, but a gaming system at that point. The only gaming <laughs> <Exactly>. system. <laughs> um, and so it just never occurred to me to kind of say to my parents, well, how come they can do this and I can't? It's just it was, it's not an argument that ever would have kind of flown in my house. And so um, the sense that... Um, we are not like everyone else, not any better or any worse. Um, just kind of became a part of my identity. I think I kind of integrated at an early age. So I want to talk about the priesthood. Sure. Because I think about um, being a priest, I think about Barbara Brown Taylor's writing, you know, this idea, you know, she talks about, you know, I, I like the word minister, but I really like the word priest because mm-hmm. it signifies a separation, right? Making a commitment to, to be different, to set yourself apart. Tell me about that journey. You know, it's interesting because I remember probably my earliest memories, I think, are since fourth grade of thinking that I might want to go into ministry. Um, I think, and it's interesting, I was very, very shy, very pious, um, very privately uh, kind of comfortable in my skin um, and publicly not so much. I mean, I was much more comfortable kind of uh, doing homework and being on stage than I, or even kind of competing in gymnastics than I was kind of in social situations. And I think that I got a lot of support from the adults in my life around that. When I was in seventh grade, my catechism teacher asked me to teach a lesson to the class. Um, which kind of looking back on it now, a seventh grader kind of teaching other seventh graders seemed kind of a, a kind of bold move on, on his part to kind of entrust me like that. And so I chose to do a lesson on youth leadership in the Bible. So I kind of scoured through all the kind of the young leaders I can think about. And it seemed important to me to have a conversation with my peers in seventh grade about 
how young people can make a difference. And I kind of look back at it now, I'm thinking, who was that seventh grader? But it's it's something that I thought about at seventh grade. You know, it's you know I was looking for a vocation at fourth grade. Um, by the time I entered uh, college, I knew I wanted to to make a difference. Um, I kind of fell into majoring in religion at Princeton. But I think for me, kind of having a sense of kind of transcendence, having a sense of kind of living in and working with communities, having a sense of kind of purpose and kind of mission in my life is something that's been a, a theme. And I think kind of studying for me, kind of studying divinity was a, a venue for me to um, find a language for that and tools to do that. So you had a real commitment to dance um, mm-hmm. as a young adult. You also have a master's in education, uh, a master's in divinity. Explain that. Explain the weaving together of of these various passions in, into a whole and, and, and what that process was like and, and what it means for you today. Kind of looking back on when I started college, I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, my, my brothers were the first in our family to go to college. Uh, my mom has since gotten her degree when she was 60 years old. But I think for for me, I, um, I just kind of followed where my kind of heart took me. Um, I was really interested um, in the Catholic worker movement as a junior in college and the ways that people integrated kind of spirituality and commitment to, um, to issues related to poverty and to peace building. Um, as a senior, I was really interested in radical motherhood. My senior thesis was on Jesus' mother and how her teachings kind of influences his ministry. Um, at the same time, I started studying dance. Um, it just seemed make sense to me. I was really interested in the capacity for the arts and dance in particular to create a language for those things which the spoken language doesn't have a vocabulary for. Some of my most kind of powerful experiences watching dance or performing dance are in those moments where people are feeling things that there there is no word for. I feel like spirituality and the arts can provide that. So for me, they always seem to kind of go hand in hand. And, and do you think that this mix of cultures, of spaces, of places, of communities, how has that impacted your ability to do the work that you do? You know, it's interesting. You would think that I had kind of planned it from the very beginning. And I think I actually really like this kind of image of kind of me kind of braiding my experiences together because every new experience allowed me to kind of pull from an, uh, an existing kind of strand um, and kind of braid it into this new experience. And so, you know, when I graduated from, from Princeton, I was interviewing with the Franciscans um, and auditioning for the Alvinelli School. And in some in some way that made sense to me and ended up at Harvard Divinity School working with a dancing priest, uh, uh, um, the dancing residents at uh, Boston College, Jesuit priest, and uh, running a dance, uh, liturgical dance company um, for a parish in downtown Boston. And so for me, it became a, a, a large part about kind of creating spaces, um, about creating community around kind of rituals of how do you how do people kind of enter into a community or into a space? Um, how do we kind of create a kind of transcendent and um, interconnected experience for people in a community or within a space? I'm Eric Dawson, and I'm speaking with social entrepreneur Eddie Gonzalez Navoa. 
You're listening to On Course, and we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. Learn more at echoinggreen.org. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to social entrepreneur Eddie Gonzalez Navoa. You were a first generation um, to go to college mm-hmm. right? um, in your family, um, and not just any college, but you went to Princeton as an undergraduate, um, uh, two graduate degrees from Harvard. So this is like supercharged in terms of access and privilege. And so you're graduating in, what, 97? Mm-hmm. My guess is thousands of opportunities of, of, of where you could go, what you could do with that, uh, you know, the priesthood, dancing, I don't know, investment banking. I don't know what folks from Harvard do. Um, <laughs> but that's not what you decide to do. T- take us back to that moment about what made you decide to uh, apply for Equine Green, to take on this fellowship opportunity to, to build something here in New York. Sure. So I kind of where does the story begin? I mean, it really is this kind of layering of experiences because I worked in a daycare center prior to going to Harvard Divinity School. I decided to take one class in education, um, which led to a internship at, um, actually it was a practicum, and I had an internship at Jumpstart where I just gone into it first year in Boston and their second year when they had started in New Haven that internship be turned into kind of a part-time job. And explain, um, explain what Jumpstart is for folks who don't know. Sure. So uh, Jumpstart is a nonprofit early childhood program that really kind of focuses on providing um, kind of mentoring, kind of tutoring support to kids in low-income preschool backgrounds and Head Start and other uh, public school settings, really focused on building their social liter- literacy skills, was really looking to kind of create new pipelines for people to go into education, um, also to kind of support families. Um, we were really trying to kind of do a lot um, in the early days. Uh, Jumpstart was looking to expand in New York. I was looking to move back to New York. And so it just seemed like where they were going, where I was going, seemed to go hand in hand. And I was particularly interested in um, the role of men in early childhood. Um, both in terms of fathers, in terms of men of color, and um, as um, kind of role models in preschool settings. And so, um, I, you know, I applied to Akron Green, really looking to expand the work of Jumpstart, but with a real focus in New York and on men in early childhood. So what were those first couple months like, right? You, you move back to the city. Did, did you move back home? You're starting a, a new uh, entity in here in New York. What, what was that experience like? We had, you know, some years of kind of momentum in in Boston and in New Haven and had a lot of kind of support coming into New York. 
And yet, we were new in New York, and New York is not Boston. And so in some ways, the fact that we had a track record in Boston um, didn't mean a whole lot when we got to New York, because it's not New York. I mean, everything from the way that Head Start is set up in, in New York is different. The hours are different in Boston and in New York. Um, in terms of scale, very, very different. In terms of culture. And so I look back and I think of how did any of our partners and funders literally entrust their children to our care? And um, how old were you at this point? <laughs> so uh, I was 27 going on 28. Okay. I think, and yeah, I just graduated in 1997. And, 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 and hadn't my, run anything. And hadn't run anything. And now you're an executive director. <laughs> Helping thousands of of early childhood students in the largest city in the country. Yeah. (laughs) When you say it like that, I'm just saying, oh, my God. No, I mean, especially kind of, you know, being in charge of programs and everything from um, looking for for new talent, um, kind of creating kind of curriculum around the work that we're doing. And I think this kind of harkened back to my kind of divinity days. So I think that my sense of curriculum had as much to do with kind of how do you, once again, kind of create a space um, that is supportive and inclusive, um, both for the college students that we're working with, as well as for the preschool students that we're working with, as well as the families that we're working with, um, who had varying um, experiences with this educational system. And then we're coming in saying that we want to be supportive um, while simultaneously suggesting that their child needs support um, and so to kind of have these difficult conversations um, required a certain kind of pastoral touch, I think. Um, and so it was interesting that someone like me would draw as much from my divinity background as my early childhood background in doing this. So, so you found your ministry? I think so. I hope so. And, and um, so you build Jumpstart here in New York. Um, and then you decide to leave. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the things that founders like yourself are often criticized for is is we never leave, right? We, we sort of stick around uh, like, like milk in the refrigerator past mm-hmm. our prime. You didn't do that. And, and how did you know it was time to leave? What, what was the moment that you said, right, it's time for me to do something different? I, you know, I think this is probably one of my, I don't know, my superpower slash kind of kryptonite. Um, but I always kind of enter into new uh, experience like that with the assumption that I don't expect to kind of be there forever. I kind of always did everything from the way I stored information, the way we, you know, we, we, I kept my contact list. Um, I always made sure that there was a system in place that would live beyond me. Anything could happen, so I wanted to make sure that if I was gone for a week, if I was gone for a month, if I was gone um, because I'd moved on, that... A, there were systems in place, and B, that we had kind of cultivated new leadership. And I think that that allowed me to do my job better because I wasn't doing it because I'm the only one who can do it. Um, I was doing it because I enjoyed doing it. Um, I was surrounded by people who could do it as well or better than me one day. And so it gave me a sense of freedom and options. And so how do you mediate that? Because I feel like as a social entrepreneur, there are these two poles we're expected to hold. One is we're risk takers, we're awesome, we're relationship builders, we're superstars, we're building things around ourselves. And then this sense of humility, um, impermanence, of building up others. And those feel like two radically different approaches to, to move through the world. How do you mediate between those? Or do you? 
I think for me, I've always invested in developing leaders. Um, I always talk about kind of leadership development, not um, staff retention, um, because I think those are two different things. Um, the things that we as leaders, managers, founders do to retain our staff is in the best interest of ourselves or of the organization, not necessarily the best interest of the staff themselves. And so my thing is, if you develop people, um, there's a chance that they will leave, and I'm okay with that. Um, but if you develop people, it's likely that they won't leave because they feel valued. So, so let's talk about leadership development, because you, you moved from there to, to Public Allies, an, another national organization where you were leading a, a, a New York office. And you moved from, from one end, which is young children, although there was also the core members who were mm-hmm. college students, to, to young professionals. Tell me about that step. Well, it's interesting because between Jumpstart and Public Allies, I also worked at a couple of different jobs in between. There was, um, I was running after-school programs and training programs for the Hatrick Martin Institute, the home of the Harvey Milk High School here in New York, and then doing uh, continuing education courses for teachers at Bank Street College of Education. And, and I mentioned that because it really was another kind of weaving of these different braids. I loved working with children and um, preschool children especially. And yet I found myself working with the people who work with children as a big part of my job. And I discovered, much to my surprise, that I actually really liked it and, it was, and it was pretty good at it. And I realized that they required a lot of the same support, um, affirmation, resources that the kids we worked with needed. And so it was a, a seamless transition to kind of working with kids to working with adults. And so explain what, what Public Allies does and, and, and what you're most proud of that, that you accomplished under your leadership there. Yeah, so um, Public Allies, a national organization based in Milwaukee, I came on board in uh, 2009. Public Allies really developed emerging leaders with this understanding that leadership can come from anywhere and that if you kind of find um, community members with talent, with drive, with passion, with skills that have may otherwise have been unrecognized and give them the opportunity, give them one year, give them two years working in a community-based organization. Not only will it develop their skills, but it also kind of support the organizations to move to the next level. Um, I had some really interesting conversations with uh, executive directors when I was at Public Allies um, because quite selfishly, I wanted to learn how to do what they do. And so and under the guise of interviewing them in order to place one of our allies there, I'd ask them questions about um, how did you get to where you are and um, how did you learn to do what you do and um, what is next for you in your learning. And to find that in so many ways, so many people in positions like mine were not prepared adequately. They had been working as teachers and social workers and kept getting promoted and one day kind of found themselves running an organization and had to kind of learn on the job everything from kind of marketing and fundraising and corporate social responsibility. And I think that was both inspiring and terrifying to me. But I think I was most proud of the fact that um, we really invested in the leadership both of our allies and the leadership of existing organizations, and that we really took um, took advantage of the opportunity that this is New York and that we can do things because of the scale of New York. We can, we can partner and have conversations and, and look at 
community problems and community solutions in a whole new way. And so you come up with much better solutions because you ask much better questions. And I, I love the fact that we have much more intersectional conversations, um, much more uh, rooted in community, real kind of lived community experiences, um, and kind of really looking more kind of long-term about the impact that we're gonna have. It was, it was a really kind of formative experience for me. I'm Eric Dawson, and I'm speaking with social entrepreneur Eddie Gonzalez-Navoa. You're listening to On Course, and we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to social entrepreneur Eddie Gonzalez-Navoa. So co-founder, um, professor, uh, coach, executive director, and then your nephew changes your life. T- tell me about that, about that phone call, about that conversation, about that invitation. Yeah, you know, a couple of things happened around the same time. The first thing is that my nephew did a TEDx talk um, in Sugarland, Texas, about his experience with cancer. He was diagnosed when he was 12 years old with a, a very rare and very aggressive form of leukemia and had a successful, what was at that point, a experimental dual stem cell transplant using umbilical cord blood. And fortunately, one of the sets of blood um, worked, and he was healthy, and he is healthy. Um, he's now kind of a college graduate, kind of moved on. And so when he did that TEDx talk about experience, his experience, it's the first time that I saw him as a person and as a leader in his own right, and not just my nephew. And I thought, wow, he's, he really knows what he's talking about. He's super articulate. Um, he had this idea to help other teenagers with cancer using video games. And I listened to it, and I, I, I hit him up afterwards and kind of gushed in the way that kind of uncles do and said, you know, this is what I do for a living, right, is I help support kind of emerging leaders and develop nonprofits. And so I guess he never really knew what I did for a living. And so he sent me a business plan, um, and and we talked about it. And then I had the crazy notion to bring it up to Cheryl Dorsey um, over at Echoing Green and said, you know, this is what my nephew is doing. And um, I love what I'm doing at Public Allies, but I really want to support him in any way that I can. And she was super supportive of me. It really kind of taking a big risk if I wanted to do anything that I can. Um, She didn't kind of make the decision for me, but she really opened up the option if I were going to do this. Um, how would I do this? 
and what would I do? And so it, it really kind of framed it in a way that allowed me to be much more open-minded. I thought it would be crazy for me to leave a, a full-time job as an executive director to an organization that I was wholeheartedly committed to, to working for an 18-year-old high school senior um, in Houston, Texas, to do video games for teenagers with cancer. It's probably going to be the craziest thing I've ever done until I started thinking about the other crazy things I've done, and I realized it probably wasn't even in the top ten. So, so you, you moved to Houston. First of all, you quit your job. Mm-hmm. You moved to Houston to work for your uh, teenage nephew mm-hmm. to design video games. Yeah. What was that like? Was it like, crap, what have I done? Or like, this is where I'm supposed to be? What was that like? Uh, I think it's a combination of all those things. And I think for me, um, there was a sense of possibility that I got from... Uh, that I got from Jumpstart, the sense of investing in the idea that anybody can lead that I got from Public Allies, the sense of kind of youth leadership that I think I believed in since seventh grade, um, since that lesson in my catechism class. And so I, I thought to myself, if I really do believe that anybody has the capacity to lead, and I really do believe in youth leadership, now is my opportunity to kind of put my money where my mouth is. And so my first thing was just to kind of do a, a download and ask him all kinds of questions. I mean, it was very, uh, I made it very clear from the very beginning, he would be the lead in all things video games. He would be the lead in all things what it's like to be a teenager with cancer. I would kind of take the lead on um, the nonprofit stuff, on the organization development stuff. But the more he and I spoke, I realized that there's other things in my background that I could kind of draw in. And one of them was studying play therapy at the School of Education. And I realized, oh, this is literally what I've been trained to do. Um, I did play therapy um, as a student. I incorporated principles of uh, relationship interventions as part of my work at Jumpstart, um, built an entire after-school program based on principles of play therapy while at Hedrick Martin. And so now I'm thinking, here I am again, creating communities in a digital environment which is what my divinity training prepared me to do, creating rituals around milestones, everything from when a teenager with cancer logs into um, to our online environment, who should greet them and what experience should they have? And, uh, when, when they, and what are the milestones that we celebrate um, for teenagers with cancer? Some of them are going to be cancer-related. Congratulations, you've finished chemotherapy. Some of them are going to be non-cancer-related. Congratulations, you've finished another year of school while going through chemotherapy. Um, and then some of them are going to be harder. You know, one of the, we had a long conversation about what happens when one of, our, um, one of our survivors stops logging into our site. You know, when in a video game environment, when someone stops logging in, it happens. Right. Um, when a teenager with cancer stops locking in, that can mean a lot of different things. And so we had to think about, and this is now, now I'm kind of putting on my divinity hat, um, how do we kind of ritualize that? Do we kind of, um, do we kind of create an image, um, a star in, in the platform without overstating it? How do we kind of, what's the culture that we want to kind of build around this? 
So I asked him a lot of questions. He just kind of like shared with me everything he knew and I would kind of do research on the side, talk to people I knew in kind of related fields, um, draw from my experiences in education and divinity and, and play therapy. And I thought to myself more and more, this is absolutely terrifying, absolutely kind of invigorating because I was like, I think I'm uniquely qualified to it, help him out. It's almost like as as a 18-year-old, you knew this is where you were going to <laughs> and carefully crafted each exactly. experience to, to lead you to that. And so so where is where is that venture now? So right now we, we put it on hold for now because he was graduating from high school and I was moving back to New York. And I think we wanted to take a step back and figure out, now that the dust is settled, what is the best role that we can, we can play? Um, because we realized there's a, a lot of different directions we could have gone in. Um, there's a lot more stuff going on around kind of video games and health now than there was when I left in 2013, I guess six years ago. Um, I think there's you know, a much better understanding of the impact of that video games can have in health and education, but most importantly, I think what we're focusing on in the areas of isolation. Um, that was a number one problem that he talked about. As a 12-year-old who had literally just started middle school a few weeks earlier, being diagnosed with cancer was 100% informed by the fact that he l- was vulnerable in his friendships at a time when he needed them the most. He was different. He was different. He's like like you in fifth grade, this same experience of, of this otherness. Absolutely. And, and, and so let's say we brought fifth grade Eddie with current day Eddie. What would you want to talk about? I don't think the fifth grade me could ever even have imagined the life that I'd be living right now. When I moved down to Houston, I used to come back and visit um, New York and New Jersey pretty often. And it was very hard leaving my, uh, my family here. Um, my nephews and my nieces were very young. Um, and I remember kind of coming back to visit. My three-year-old nephew said, you know, it's a deal. How come you're always kind of going to get on a plane or flying a plane? Because I took, I got a Groupon to take flight lessons in Houston. And I felt so bad, like, oh, my gosh, he's thinking me as that uncle is always leaving. But then I looked at his face and I realized that's not what he's asking. He's trying to figure out how do you always like live in a plane and like you make video games for a living and that's your job and you live in Houston but you also live in Brooklyn you also live in Harlem and and you're an adult but you're not married you don't have kids and I'm thinking I think he's I think he thinks I'm cool <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm hoping that the fifth grade me would think the same thing like I don't quite understand how your life works but I'm really intrigued and kind of um, I think I think the fifth grade would at least be intrigued and maybe a little impressed, hopefully. And and you, uh, in a sense, put your life on hold again to help your grandfather die. Mm-hmm. T- talk about that experience and that choice. I was actually just re- I, I was reading a journal entry that I wrote the day that I moved to Texas and how hard it was to leave my grandfather because I remember thinking to myself in the moment how should I do this? Should I pretend that this is going to be the last goodbye? Because what if I don't see him again? And I'm thinking, just psychologically, I I couldn't even think that way. So I was like, okay, make the most of this moment, but you need to believe in your heart that it's not going to be the last time. Because if you do believe that, you probably won't get on the plane. And the reality is, at this point, at 94 years old, it's not a question of what should happen, what if something happens while I'm gone. It's probably a question of, um, 
what it's going to happen and so how are we going to handle it well fast forward four um four years later he's 98 years old i'm back in new york he is put into hospice care a month after i moved back to my apartment in new york i'm back in my mom's apartment in new jersey helping take care of him um it's literally the one of the reasons why i moved back to new york um not because i knew that he'd be putting in hospice care but i knew it was coming and i wanted to be around for my family so while I didn't plan on it, it's it's what I wanted. Um, and the good news is, over, around that time, because of the work I was doing with Survivor Games and my nephew, and the side gig that, um, that I'd taken up with what my current project right now, Energizing Health, it allowed me to work remotely. And so now I had a full-time job that I can do from anywhere around the world, Houston, New York, or my mom's dining room table in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And so I can be a full-time gar- caregiver while being a full-time co-founder now for the third time. Um, and it was one of the most kind of satisfying and difficult things, probably the most kind of satisfying kind of difficult things that I've done in my life. Um, the idea of, the experience of kind of going back and forth between you know, a conference call, um, while I'm simultaneously adjusting my grandfather's catheter and checking in on him to make sure, making sure he was still breathing in the next room. And that was my life for a year. And it does a lot to your kind of mind and your spirit kind of going through that experience. Yeah, I bet. So in this last piece, Eddie, I, I want to, um, this is our speed round. Sure. Um, so I'm going to ask you questions and just word, phrase, sentence uh, about how you would answer that. So if you could sit down with yourself 20 years from now, what would you want to know? The first question I know is, you know, are you happy and what makes you happy? If you couldn't be doing exactly what you're doing now, but could do anything in the world, what would that be? I would have a job that, uh, or it was my job to travel and experience things. What's your favorite video game? Journey. It's beautiful kind of music and art. What's a spiritual practice that sustains you? I actually look for transcendent moments both through um, being in nature. Um, I like views of mountains and water. Um, And dancing to house music in Brooklyn and Harlem parks. If you could give a, a, a piece of wisdom or advice to someone who is coming up in the field as an 18, 19 year old who's listening to this, what would you tell them? I would tell them to um, to surround yourself with people who believe in you, um, not just people who agree with you, but who believe in you enough to tell you when they don't agree with you, um, and to put yourself in kind of situations that are new to you. Eddie, I want to thank you uh, for a couple things. I want to thank you for sharing your journey, um, but mostly I want to thank you for who you are in the world. Um, a priest friend of mine uh, once said that we don't actually build relationships out of love. We build relationships to have someone who will bear witness to our lives. Hmm. And as I think about your journey, I think about this role that you occupy where you bear witness, whether it's to a cantankerous preschooler, <laughs> a tired teacher, um, a dying grandfather, uh, a sick nephew, this, this ability to accompany, um, to create space while also being present uh, is a gift to the world, and I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Oh, well, thank you very much, and I appreciate those super, super kind words. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. Thank you.
To find out more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course.